Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 98, Dr. Michael Heiser on Old Testament Binitarianism. Before we get to this week's interview, I just wanted to thank iTunes user Jay Kamenek for his positive review in the iTunes store, in the U.S. store. It says, quote, If you are interested in theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then this podcast should certainly interest you. I love the variety of guest philosophers and theologians. The interviews are always enjoyable and informative, whether Dale Tuggy is interviewing a Unitarian, a Trinitarian, or someone with another perspective on God and Jesus. In addition to the interviews with Anthony Buzzard and Sean Finnegan, I especially enjoyed the interviews from episodes 83 to 96. Overall, it's a great job by Mr. Tuggy exploring theories about God. Check it out. End quote. There's also a review by user dben456. Like the first review, this user gives the podcast five stars and then proceeds to say, quote, It was refreshing to discover Trinities recently. I visited the site initially to listen to an episode from one particular scholar and then looked at their feed and found so many to seek out. The host does a great job giving a guest an opportunity to represent their views on their own terms, end quote. Thank you. I really do try to be fair to guests and to let them give their argument. I do sometimes ask hard questions or argue back maybe a little more than some interviewers would, but any guest on I have is somebody I think is worth listening to and somebody who has some insights. And this podcast is meant to be a place where Christians with different theologies can argue about them in a loving and yet rational way. We're all trying to find the truth. When we have contrary views that we know can't both be correct, then what we do then is we argue about them. This is just what people do who want their views to be true. And one thing I'll do sometimes when I have a guest who just mentions uh, a million different biblical texts is I'll actually put links to those texts on the blog post. This is one of those episodes. Dr. Heiser is very versed in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and he mentions a whole bunch of passages. And I don't know if I caught them all, but I tried to catch them all. And even if they're not in the right order, I've got links to them on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. The easiest way to find it is probably just to go to trinities.org. And then click on podcast and click on episode 98. If you do that, then you can click the links whenever he mentions the passage and you can be a good Berean and follow up and see if text really says what he says it says. So let's hear from today's guest. Dr. Heiser holds three graduate degrees, an MA in ancient history, and then both an MA and PhD in Hebrew and Semitic studies. He can translate about a dozen ancient languages and he currently works as a scholar in residence for Logos Bible Software. He's also taught college-level courses at several institutions of higher learning. With a co-host, he produces the Naked Bible podcast and has authored two paranormal science fiction novels, The Facade and its sequel, The Portent. In addition to his homepage at drmsh.com, he maintains websites dealing with paleobabble, weird beliefs about the ancient world, and about UFO religions. He's published many professional articles and other published pieces on countless topics connected with the Bible, including monotheism, angels, the divine council, and today's subject, divine plurality, or a kind of binitarianism that he finds in the Old Testament. One of the themes in his new book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Dr. Heiser, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for having me back. Dr. Heiser, many scholars and also Unitarian Christians hold that the monotheism of the Old Testament is pure and that this was later complicated or even corrupted by Trinitarian speculations. But you argue that the Old Testament, in some sense, teaches that God is multipersonal. Why do you think this? Well, I think that because that is the way the text presents its God talk. I had to sort of mentally chuckle a little bit about the Old Testament monotheism being pure, uh, there's so many passages that refer to divine plurality that I think the, the quote-unquote purists probably aren't aware of that, you know, they, they need to go back and sort of rethink, you know, this, this purity model. But setting that aside, the, the Old Testament presents Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
really in, in two ways. I, and I, I don't want to really say two modes because I don't want people to think that this is modalism because you're actually going to get the two expressions or the two, uh, the two portrayals of Yahweh can be simultaneous in, in certain scenes. But Yahweh is portrayed as uh, invisible, as a spirit, as something that, that can't be seen and, and really shouldn't be seen. And then there are other places where you have a, an embodied figure or, uh, again, God coming in some other discernible form. And what I mean by that is something that can be detected with the human senses. So when that happens, when the, the latter happens, it's most often as a human being, or at least in human form. It's not the incarnation, but again, it's human, human form. There's embodiment language there. And that second sort of expression, the embodied entity, the embodied deity, the embodied Yahweh, uh, is often referred to as the angel, okay, the, the, the Malach Adonai, the angel of Yahweh. I think one of, the, one of the more fundamental passages here is Exodus 23, verses 20 to 23, where God is speaking to Moses and he says, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you. This is the journey to the promised land. And you need to obey him. You need to you know, listen to what he says. Uh, he's not going to pardon your transgressions because my name is in him. Now, this takes us into this whole arena of what Old Testament theologians call the name theology. And they, they like to fight over what the name theology means. Basically, I think for, for people today, if, if you might have a Jewish friend or maybe you are Jewish, a lot of conservative uh, Jews will, instead of saying the divine name, I had a professor at Wisconsin who preferred that we not say Yahweh. We could say either Adonai, which means Lord, or we could say Hashem, which means the name. So even in the Old Testament, we have this modern example, and, we, and you go back into the Old Testament, the phrase Hashem, or Shem, the name, is a way of referring to God himself. And in some cases, even that is personified. We have passages in Isaiah that talk about the name of the Lord coming from afar, and he's, he's angry, and his, the facial expressions you know, show his anger, and so on and so forth. So we have this name theology. Well, here in Exodus 23, God tells Moses, look, you need to pay attention to this angel because my name is in him. My presence is in him. My, my essence is in him. Really, I am in him. Because you have other passages where the burning bush, Yahweh and the angel are both present simultaneously. You have Gideon, the, the Judges 6. They're both there simultaneously. In fact, the angel leaves at the end of the passage and God is still there. God says to, to, to Gideon, don't worry. Because Gideon, when, when the angel takes off, Gideon says, oh, no, I've seen God face to face. I'm going to die. And God says, the Lord says, Yahweh says, don't worry. You know, you're not going to die. So we, we have this two-ness, again, this invisible and visible. The way I talk about it in the book is two Yahweh figures in the Old Testament. So that doesn't have anything to do with later Christian Trinitarian talk. And you're not going to get the kind of Trinitarian talk that you see in the church fathers, because again, they're trying to articulate what they're seeing in the text. They're trying to use precise terms and they're interacting with the thinkers and the philosophers of their day. And they have to, you know, adopt certain vocabulary. There's sort of a connection, but, but they're not doing that in the Old Testament. But what they are doing is presenting Yahweh in, in sort of a, a duality picture that in some cases is simultaneous. In other cases, they're, they're different characters. Genesis 48 is a great example of this, where Jacob is uh, blessing Joseph's children, and he's on his deathbed. And again, lots of Christians know this story, but the only part they remember is when Jacob crosses Joseph, or you know, Jacob crosses his hands to bless the kids, and they don't really pay attention to what Jacob actually says. He says in, in Genesis 48:15 and 16, he says, "May the God who you know preserved me, you know, throughout my life." Next stanza: "May the God who you know took care of me and." kept me from harm. And then the third stanza is, may the angel, you know, who did thus and that. And then the verb comes, may he bless these boys. The verb is singular. Now, if the writer wanted to, to be clear and say, well, I'm talking about two different entities here, he would have made the verb plural, but he doesn't. May he bless the boys. Well, who, who's the he, God or the angel? The answer is yes. So there's this, there's this sense of Yahweh being two persons two figures, but those two are also sort of one, but, but not. Again, you get this is but isn't. Yahweh is but isn't this angel, and 
the angel is but isn't Yahweh. And this is the way that we, in the New Testament, you see this sort of language going on where Jesus is identified uh, with God, but he's also distinguished you know, from, from God. It's the same sort of tension, if you will, uh, or, or presentation, same kind of presentation. Now, this is what I was wondering about. You, you seem to take the view that there is an apparent contradiction here, but I don't see it. I, well, mean, I, don't, I don't think it's contradictory. It's not a problem that the kind of Trinitarian theory is needed to solve? I thought that's the, pi- the picture you're painting. Yeah, I, th- I think the, what, it, what emerges as Trinitarian is, is a way to express what you see in the text. Now, in the Old Testament, it, it, it's pretty clear that you get this, this two, this, this binitarian picture. And Jewish thinkers, Jewish rabbis of, of the pre-Christian era, I mean, they weren't dumb. They, they know their Bible. They recognize this stuff. And this is why a, a belief in the second power in heaven, two good guys, not, this isn't dualism, good and evil. This is two powers, two good powers in heaven. Some Jewish texts even go far as far to call the second one as the lesser Yahweh and, and whatnot. But they see this and they're trying to you know, express it. So I think what's happening here is what emerges as Trinitarian language is a way of talking about this phenomenon. In the Old Testament, you get two. If you know sort of the motifs that are associated with the second Yahweh figure, there are a couple passages that assign those motifs to the spirit. And so you have sort of the, the, the kernel of a three uh, picture. I actually think that the three picture really is focused on Jesus in the New Testament because you, just as you have Jesus being God, but, but also being distinct from God, you know, the is but isn't kind of language that I use, the Spirit is spoken of in the same way. The Spirit is but isn't Jesus. And you have five or six times where the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of Christ. Uh, along with the Spirit of God. So you have the same sort of mixture. So I'm not saying that you can go to the text, especially the Old Testament, and come out with the sort of real structured, formalized, you know, Trinitarian language that Christianity comes up with later. What I am saying is I think that kind of language, what we see, you know, using that kind of language for, for what is presented in the Old Testament just naturally is going to dovetail uh, to, to some extent, you know, I think to a, a decent extent, with what does come out, you know, the other end, you know, in, in, in early church discussion. But I'm, I'm not saying there's some sort of linear relationship. I don't, I don't know if that helps at all, but... Let me try to paraphrase what you're saying. So... Sure. You're saying that... You're not, you're not saying that the Old Testament explicitly or implicitly even teaches the Trinity or a multipersonal God, but there are features of it, you think, that mm, suggest or need explaining in terms of multiple somethings in God, multiple persons or modes. Or Is that fair? I think the key term there is teaches. I mean, you don't have any sort of direct propositional assertion in the Old Testament that we, you know, we have three or even two. I mean, there's Genesis 48, it gets pretty close uh, because of the the singular verb form that fuses the two figures together. But even that isn't a propositional assertion. Uh, It's a feature of the text where God was viewed as being capable of being in more than one place at once and being more than one person at once. And so that's a phenomenon that arises from the text. It's also not unique, by the way, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, you have other uh, ancient Near Eastern religions where they they are certainly believing this. For, for instance, Baal. Baal could be many uh, places all at the same time. When, when you know, Baal is in one location, that doesn't mean he's not in another location. He can be multi-present. He can be Baal of this city or Baal of that city. When a, a certain region would identify Baal with a different deity, either by name or, or by attributes, that doesn't mean that the other Baal is erased. There's this multivalent language uh, about deity that happens in the ancient Near Eastern world that is also present in, in the Hebrew Bible. Again, it, it's, it's something that's in the text, but again, the operative word, going back to your summary, teaches, again, would, would be a little strong. I think, I think you get closer to that uh, in the New Testament, especially with Jesus. But I, I see the New Testament writers actually talking about the Spirit 
the way the Old Testament talked about the second Yahweh figure. And since the second Yahweh figure is presented as Jesus in the New Testament, you wind up with three. You wind up with God of the, of the Old Testament. You wind up with the second Yahweh figure who is Jesus. And then you also wind up with a spirit who also is Jesus but also isn't. It doesn't really carry any further than three. And so if you're just letting the phenomenon of the text say what it says, you're naturally going to be talking about those three figures. And then out of that is going to emerge this thing we know as Trinitarianism. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there are propositional assertions, you know, clear teaching statements that, you know, God is three in one and, you know, that kind of thing. The, the language of that has to be developed, and I think was, in the early church discussion. Dr. Heiser, in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo the Jew, which is roughly mid-2nd century, we find that Justin thinks it obvious that the Most High God can't interact directly with the cosmos, but must remain aloof, dealing only indirectly through another being, kind of intermediary between God and creation. We see the same kind of theology in Philo of Alexandria. Philo is the very Hellenized Jewish Bible commenter who lives around the time of Jesus. Isn't this way of understanding the transcendence of God a product of Platonic philosophy, specifically Plato's Timaeus? And in your view, do we see in the Hebrew Bible the idea that God can't appear in physical human form or deal directly with his creation? I don't see any place in the, in the Hebrew Bible that, where that's forbidden. I don't know enough about Platonic philosophy to... I'm going I'm to trust you that, that the resistance to you know, God appearing in, in physical human form, if, if that's Platonic, I'll lay that at the, the feet of the Platonists then. I don't see that forbidden in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, we, we get very clear instances of that occurring. Genesis 18, 19, you know, Yahweh, it turns out, th three men come to visit Abraham. We find out later in the chapter that one of them is Yahweh. We find out in chapter 19, the other two guys were angels. Well, they sit and they have a meal, you know, with Abraham and Sarah. We, we know the story. So it, it's very clear that, that God is showing up there in human form. There, there's no prohibition to it. There's no, like, shock, you know, built into the encounter. The Word is presented in the Old Testament in human form. You have Jeremiah 1 where the Word touches Jeremiah. The Word is identified as Yahweh in Jeremiah 1, and the Word touches Jeremiah. There's a tactile experience there. You get indications of this in the Hebrew Bible, so I think it would really be a flawed thing to say that the Hebrew Bible somehow forbids this. And again, this, this isn't unique. Uh, you, you get this in other, other ancient Near Eastern religious texts as well. And the Hebrew Bible is, 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 in that sense, following suit. I mean, theologically, obviously, it's going to do different things. Uh, you have this sense that, you know, the, the rabbis would famously say, no, no, no man has seen God at any time, and there, there are even, you know, Hints, hints of that you know, in, in the Bible. What I think is going on there, because very, Exodus 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders go up to the mountain, and they, they quote, you know, look at verses 9 and 10. We, they saw the God of Israel. They sit down. They have a meal with him. Right. What the disconnect here is, is that what couldn't be experienced is the unveiled presence of God. Uh, I like to put it this way. God wants to communicate and be among his people. Well, he has a, really two fundamental problems. If I appear to a human being as really what I am, they're not going to be able to process me at all because I am so other than them. They have no frame of reference for what I am. The other problem is if I did that, they'd die. <laughs> so that sort of undermines the communication effort here. And so biblical writers are very free, and it, you know, Israelite you know, biblical theology is very free to present God as filtered or veiled, either in a flame or in, in an embodied human form, because humans can process that. And in, and in some sense, they're protected, they're veiled. The panim, the true essence of what God is, the true presence, is filtered. 
so that it's processable and it's for their own protection. Uh, you know, when, when Moses, you know, wants to see God and, you know, God hides him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by and he, you know, shields him with his left hand and Moses gets to see the back parts. It's still embodiment language there. What Moses is not allowed to experience is the disembodied presence, the unveiled, you know, glory. That's what I think when no man is allowed to see God at any time. I think it's really referring to an unfiltered, unveiled presence because the Hebrew Bible is full of this sort of embodiment experience uh, elsewhere. Right. So if the writer says you can't see God and then turns right around and says these people saw God, well, he must mean that you can see him in one sense and you can't see him in another sense. Right. And you're saying, well, you can't behold his whole glory or something like that or see him as he fully is. There's something that it just wouldn't go well, <laughs> you know, right. if, if it happens some other way. So this is how we're going to do it for your own good. Now, I think this is right. I mean, I think you're doing a great job explaining what the perspective of the Hebrew Bible is about these kind of things. What I see historically is in the Hebrew Bible, God's all-powerful. So an all-powerful being can cause you to have a vision. He can work through an angel that he authorizes and puts his name on him, so to speak. Uh, and whatever the angel says is what is also what he indirectly says or indirectly does. Or he can, you know, he can project out kind of a pseudo temporary or temporary body and wrestle with you. Mm -hmm. um, he's all powerful and all powerful being can do anything. At least it's not contradictory. What I see as time goes on when you get into the Hellenistic era is an increasing pressure to make God super transcendent so that he doesn't get implicated in, in uh, the material world and, and uh, creating evil or, or things that will become evil like the lower part of the soul and things like that. So there's increasing pressure to come up with an intermediary. Oh, well, if this Yahweh was seen, that's not the, the Yahweh we were talking about a minute ago. That's another Yahweh. Or if there's a God who's seen, well, that's another God. That's, you know, that's the intermediary. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because obviously Hellenistic Judaism is just one strain of Judaism. And, you know, you're, you're going to, to have... Let's be fair. I, I, I'm sure it's, it has something to do with Plato and, you know, his whole thinking about forms and how that affected Greek religion and, you know, the, the gods sort of went away or became, you know, super transcendent or something like that. You know, you're, you're having that filtered down, you know, into the discussion with uh, Judaism, Jewish religion, Hebrew religion at, at that point in history. But you also have other streams of Judaism that aren't going to be that. And, it becomes one of, of a number of things, again, that creates a diversity within Judaism. We tend to think of Second Temple Judaism as, as this monolithic, intellectually monolithic entity. Uh, that isn't the case. I mean, you've got the Qumran sect, you've got the Enochian Judaism, you've got the Pharisaical Judaism, you've got Hellenistic Judaism, you've got the Sadducee. You know, it's, it's like today. You know, not every Jew is going to talk about... Uh, either God or their own Bible, you know, different passages in the same way. So, yeah, I mean, you get, you get somebody like Philo and, and others that are going to go one direction. And I'm not saying it, it, it's bad. I mean, they, they obviously, I, I think, you know, they, there was a, a good intention there to try to build bridges, you know, into the, uh, into the Gentile you know, Hellenistic uh, worldview. So I'm not, I'm not here to sit in judgment on that. It just is what it is. But then you're going to have resistance to it, you know, elsewhere. So, in that period, you get lots of speculation. I have a whole chapter in my dissertation on this, uh, who the second power was, who this second Yahweh figure was in the Old Testament, because it, it, it's very easy to notice these kinds of passages we've been talking about. And so the answer to that question produced a whole spectrum of answers, and some of that was dictated by sort of where, you, where your philosophical bent or not was. Typically, it fell into exalted humans, you know, who were, you know, glorified would be the second power. You get Adam, Moses. You get passages, you know, in, in Second Temple Jewish literature about, about Moses sharing the throne of God, where God says, hey, come on up here, Moses, have a seat. You know, it really dramatically, some people would say offensive or almost heretical thinking, you know, for a Jew. Well, it's, these are Jewish texts. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to parse, okay, who the second power is, you know. So Abraham, because he was the friend of God, maybe it's him. Adam, you know, he, he had to be the best human being because he was the first one. Maybe it's him. 
you know, you have all this speculation, David, you know, all, all these great figures, Melchizedek. And then you have the sort of the second group would be, no, it, it can't be any human. It, it has to be one of the angels. You know, one of the angels takes this role. And so Michael, Gabriel, you know, whatever. Then you get some that are sort of invented, Yahoel, which is an interesting one because there you have the two names of God, Yah and El. But he's an angel. He's Yah, but he's not. And again, they're, they're, they're struggling trying to, again, speculate and articulate what they see happening in the texts in such a way that it's decipherable to them and it, it's explainable and it, 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 it sort of fits. It, it mentally fits. Well, Christians come along and they say, well, hey, you know, we have this you know, embodiment language here in the Old Testament, and that's linked, you know, through a variety of passages to the, the, the Messianic king, you know, the, the, the royal king, the, the line of David. And here we have Jesus of Nazareth, who was descended from David, you know, the, the Messiah here. We think that the second power was, was this particular guy that you all know, and he was born of a woman, and now we have the incarnation, and, and that, just, that just sort of blew the whole thing up. Because it's one thing to say that there's a second power, and it might be a, an exalted Old Testament figure, it might be an angel, but to say it was this guy who was born of a woman, you know, the whole idea of the incarnation was, was just mind-blowing. That, that really upped the ante. And then the, the, the fact that he was crucified, you know, by... By them, I mean, you know, some of the, the, the people that, again, these initial articulations were being read by or heard by. Again, in, in Second Temple Jewish scholarship about the second power, those two ideas, the incarnation and the fact that this person was actually rejected and crucified by the Jews, and you're saying this was the second Yahweh, that's what really drove a wedge between the Christian sect of Judaism, you know, because Christianity comes out of its Jewish heritage there, and other speculations about the second power. It, it was offensive. I mean, it was just downright offensive. And, and so that, the, the reaction to it is really telling. This is the same period where the second power is declared a heresy by the Jewish thinkers around the second century. It becomes a, a heresy. The Septuagint is, is off limits. The Masoretes get together and they form what we know as the Masoretic text, you know, to, to sort of clean up the text of the multiple textual traditions. They decide on what the text is going to be, and this is the one we're going to copy and hand down for the rest of time, immemorial. This is our text now. Stay away from the Septuagint, because that's the Bible the Christians use. You know, it's a different text. That right. Even fixing the canon of the Old Testament was done around after the year 200, I believe, partly in response to the Christians. There are a lot of th things that are, that are just playing tit for tat here. You know, it, it, it's really kind of interesting. It, Isaiah 9 is, a, is an interesting passage. We know this, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, you know, Handel's Messiah. We, you know, we sort of repeat these words every year at Christmas time. The Septuagint doesn't say any of that. The Septuagint says that he shall be called the angel of the great council. I mean, holy cow, you know, it just like, where in the world did they get that? That was good fodder if you're a Christian, you know, using the Septuagint as, as your Bible because, hey, most of the church is Gentile to, to look around. You know, we're not doing it in Aramaic, we're not doing it in Hebrew, but Greek is the language everybody can read, and so the Septuagint is, is just a natural, you know, fit there. You look at passages like that, and well, good grief, of course, it's, the, here, here's the angel of the great council, the angel language, you know, back here in Genesis, and, and we have, you know, the, the messianic language here in Isaiah 9. I mean, do the math, guys, it was Jesus of Nazareth. And so the Septuagint was, was something that in places, I mean, we just can't allow people in our own you know, Jewish community be, to be looking at this thing. So we're going to standardize the text. I mean, you, you have a lot of this stuff going on in reaction to Christianity. And I, again, I'm, I understand that because what, what do we expect them to do? They're losing converts. I mean, people are emerging, you know, out of their Judaism, they're embracing Jesus as Messiah. We see this in the book of Acts. So that, that just keeps going. And what do we expect the Jewish community to do? They're going to do something to try to keep this from happening and they're thinking that they're doing the right thing you know they're they're defending the faith they're defending you know the you know the their own articulation of what it means to you know have the lord our god as one and these are very natural responses i mean i'm not i'm not saying any either side here is the evil evil doer it's, it's just very normal what we see happening but you know we, we get to look back at that and and a lot of this discussion this divine plurality discussion was part of that for fairly obvious reasons.
the two powers stuff is really messy because some of it seems to have been in response to the Christians and some of it comes before the Christians. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of different suggestions for who the lesser, the intermediary is or the second Yahweh or lesser Yahweh, etc. We shouldn't forget about Gnosticism either because that, you know, Gnosticism borrows from you know, there, there's streams from Judaism that feed into it. There's streams from Christianity that feed into it. And, you know, a, a Jew naturally would have been offended by the notion of the Demiurge, you know. So that's another reason to be really freaked out and, and angry uh, about any sense, any sense at all of divine plurality or a, more than one or something like that. So, you know, they're, they're getting hit from that side, too. And so there's a natural, res- uh, again, antagonistic response against a second power and even if he's even if he's a good guy but especially if he's a bad guy you know that we just got to get rid of this now dr heiser we're talking about your idea that the jews were in some sense binatarians maybe they didn't know it they wouldn't have put it that way but anyway their view was or at least would lead to the idea that god was there's more than one self or person within god um but i wonder what you do with what looks to me like really overwhelming biblical evidence that the God in the Jewish Bible, the one true God, the highest God, Yahweh, just is a certain mighty self, that he's not multiple selves. So there's nearly always singular pronouns used by him and about him. He appears, as we've discussed, as a man or at least in humanoid form on earth and appears in visions as, a, as kind of like a human guy on a throne, like a king. He has a proper name, Yahweh. He speaks, he's spoken to. And then when we get to the New Testament, it turns out that this one God is the one that Jesus calls the Father. So wouldn't any Jew at the time of Jesus view the God of the Bible, the Jewish Bible, as a single person? I think that the biblical writers could have cut all of that discussion out had they not presented Yahweh in two figures. I'll give you an example. You know, you get, you get passages like Deuteronomy 4, around verse 35 to 39, that has uh, references to God, that God is in heaven, but he's also the power on earth as well. Uh, you, you get the sense of God is remote, you know, up there in the heavens, you know, Solomon's prayer for the temple, but yet the glory, you know, fills the temple. If the glory is here, does that mean God is absent in one place and present in another? Again, in Israel, I would have said, well, no. I mean, it's just, he's, he's, he's up there and he's down here too. You know, it, it, he, he's more than one place. I, I think if the Hebrew Bible would have avoided things like that, you know, where we have the, the name in the temple, and yet we can talk about God in heaven in the same passage. If that wasn't in the Hebrew Bible, then there wouldn't have even been this discussion. So... Your question is, you know, do they look at, you know, only, as this is only speaking of one entity? My answer is, well, no, because the Hebrew Bible isn't consistent in that regard. And that becomes a precursor, again, for some of these things that are, are said in, in the New Testament. And especially since it's linked, you get second Yahweh figure epithets and motifs linked to the line of David at some point. Uh, linked to the divine warrior, you know, who is, is and also, who is God, but is also the king, for instance. When you start to link it again to the line of David, the messianic idea, and then you get Jesus on in the New Testament, Jesus sort of falls right into that. Jesus, you know, talks about the name that was given to him. Well, well we know who you are. It's, it's, you're, you're Jesus. Well, that isn't what he's talking about, because everybody does know his name. It's this language drawn from the Old Testament on into the New and attributed to Jesus. The New Testament writers will quote an Old Testament passage about Yahweh, and then they'll, they'll make Jesus the, the divine actor in that passage. And this is all deliberate. Jude says that Jesus was the one who delivered the people you know, from, from Egypt. Well, that was the angel. Well, of course it was, because they're, they're part and parcel, one and the same, six of one, half a dozen of another. You know, if you didn't have this kind of language going on in the Old Testament, you wouldn't have it in the New. And so you have this, again, two-ness going on. When one is referring to the other, of course, you're going to use singular pronouns. You know, when, when, you're, when you're highlighting one in a discussion as opposed to the other, or both, and you're referring to one and then to the other, of course, you're going to have this language because that language is in the Old Testament, too. There's very little difference between the language of the Old Testament in, in terms of presenting Yahweh as, as two, 
than in, in the new. You just get more of it in the new, and you actually have sort of a, a more pronounced divine actor, I'm speaking of Jesus here, in the picture, in, in the scenery. You know, in, in the, the narrative becomes about that, that one individual in, in, in overwhelming ways. And so you get more of the language, you get more, I don't want to say fine-tuning of it, because I, I, you know, I don't want to overstate the case here. But there's a lot of consistency between singular pronouns. You get that in both Testaments, but you also get this second Yahweh kind of figure in both Testaments. I, I see a lot of consistency here, uh, even though in the Old Testament it doesn't have, you don't have the, the same amount, and you don't have you know, something of the same precision, I guess. I, I don't know if that's a good word to use or not. I don't see this huge disconnect where now we're in the New Testament and, and oh, isn't it funny that Jesus talks about God and, and, and God is referred to with singular pronoun. Well, he's referred to that way in the Old Testament too, you know, and, but you got this other language in the Old Testament as well. Again, if you didn't have that other language in the Old Testament, well, yeah, then the New Testament would look kind of odd. You know, then we'd wonder, well, what's up with this Jesus guy? I mean, this is something totally new. But this duality language in the Old Testament becomes, again, a a precursor becomes a, a sort of prepping is, is how I think of it. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that you, if you walked up to an Old Testament Israelite and said, hey, are you binatarian? I don't think he'd know what you were talking about. If you described, hey, you know, can, can God be in heaven and here on earth at the same time? And sometimes when he's on earth, he'd be in the form of a man. He's, well, duh, of course he can. Didn't you read this passage over here? We, we sort of have this, like, conceit's the wrong word, but uh, sometimes I think we, we assume that if an Old Testament writer or a New Testament writer isn't using exactly the same language uh, in the same way that they can't be talking about or conceptualizing the same things. I think that's a flawed way of thinking about it. Uh, it's evident that both are in both Testaments, and so I don't see either side of it, either the singularity or the duality in either Testament. I don't see it as an oddity. Let's run with that example that you gave from the book of Jude. It's a controversial reading. You discuss this in your book, um, mm -hmm. the interpretation yeah. where it's a reading in the text and an interpretation which has Jesus being active in, in uh, Old Testament times. Suppose that's right. Um, as we discussed last week, in the Old Testament, there are many Elohim, and they're all under Yahweh, who's the, the greatest among them and utterly unique, even though he's, he can be called an Elohim as well. So if Jesus was the Elohim doing something, leading the Israelites, interacting with Moses, why wouldn't it just follow that, okay, then Jesus isn't just a man who recently came into existence, but it wouldn't move him into, within the being of the one God, right? Well... Jesus is the only, we'll say, divine figure, even though, again, the New Testament is presented as fully human. Jesus is the only divine figure identified with Yahweh. That particular angel that leads the nation out of, out of Egypt on into the Promised Land is the only angel in the Old Testament identified with Yahweh by virtue of Exodus 23. And so it's, it's very easy to see how the, the, the two would align together. Now, yes, that being would be in existence prior to the Incarnation, but that's one of the things that's really different in the New Testament is the idea of incarnation, that God, you know, was wound up in the womb of Mary, had to pass through the birth canal, gets born, you know, had to learn how to eat with a spoon, had to learn how to poop, you know, I mean, it's just, that whole idea, God incarnate, is beyond anything you'll see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have anthropomorphic language, you have even embodiment language, tactile language. You do not have any sense of incarnation. Okay, that is something uh, entirely new. And in biblical theology, there are reasons why the incarnation idea that we see in the New Testament was necessary in the, in, in the trajectory of biblical theology. Because, just fast and loose here, one of the necessities of the incarnation is because we don't have humans capable of fulfilling any of the covenants they entered into with the God of Israel. Okay, but those covenants are, were made with people. They were made with Israelites. And so for those covenants to be repaired and resolved and fulfilled, you need a human being to fulfill them. Well, the demands are perfection. That's impossible. So you need God to become a man to fulfill those things. Okay, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all these terms, the law. So the incarnation 
is in, a, in an instance like that necessary to sort of clean up the fulfillment of the covenants of the Old Testament. Again, you won't get that spelled out in a verse in, in either Testament. It's something that when you think about the covenants and their ramifications and their, you know, the, the, the terms and the, what the terms are tied to, possession of the land, re- reclaiming the nations, the whole messianic idea, it demands that the Messiah be a human and also be this second Yahweh figure. This whole messianic idea is just splintered and exploded into so many little pieces. And th- this freaks out Christians, too, when I, when I say this in church. Look, you don't have any verse that talks about a suffering Messiah, a Messiah that has to die who is also God. You don't have any verse that spells that out. And those are the fundamental core points of Christianity. So when I go in and say, hey, you're not going to find this in any verse in the Old Testament. It just freaks people out. Well, it, it's true. You don't. What you do find is you find all those ideas scattered in 1250 you know, places, and you have to put them together as a mosaic. You create a profile. You create a picture. The picture that emerges is what we see over here, but it's impossible to discern unless you're after the fact. And that's the way it's presented in the book of Acts. I mean, even the risen Christ has to, you know, quote, unquote, open their minds to what was happening so that they could understand. the They couldn't just go read it because it's not in one place. It's in 50 places. So after the fact, they can discern that, but they even need help at that. So we have two testaments, and, and we can't look back and, and, and read all this stuff. So a lot of these thoughts are essential, but they're also scattered. It's hard to, to sort of, again, proof text something that really isn't proof textable because it doesn't exist in one place. And this whole duality, you know, oneness language, two-ness language, three-ness language, there's no formulaic statement of it. It's something that is present in the text, and it emerges, and then it's up to us to talk about it. And that's what happens in the course of, of early Christian theology and on into, you know, the theological debates about this stuff. So I don't, I don't find any of it strange. I don't find any of it unusual. Uh, again, if you walked up to an Israelite, they, they wouldn't know what you were talking about if you used binatarian. If they said, can God be in more than one place at one time? Can he be in more than one, you know, entity, figure, person? You know, whatever vocabulary you'd have to use to communicate the idea, okay, based upon what they see in the Hebrew text. They'd say, oh, okay, I understand that because of this passage, because of that passage, and this one over here. Well, all the New Testament writers are doing is looking at this stuff looking at the, the concept of the Messiah, the messianic profile. We need a deity. We need a deity that, that, that is also human of the line of David. It's this guy. And, and the things fall into place after the fact is, is how, again, it, it's presented. You know, in the New Testament is in process. They're learning about this. They're putting it together. They're writing about it in New Testament books. They're doing the best they can to express, again, the connections that they see after the fact back into the Old Testament. So they get their theology from the Old Testament, but you won't find a verse in the Old Testament that gives you full-blown Christianity. You just won't. So in your view, in the New Testament, Jesus is both human and divine, but is Jesus Yahweh? Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. Just as the angel was Yahweh embodied or in human form. Again, the incarnation ups the ante. The incarnation is is different, is distinct. That's new. But it's not new in the sense that it wasn't prefigured or, or it, it isn't or wasn't required by certain points of Old Testament theology. It was. It's just not spelled out. It's just not specifically you know, prophesied in one you know, propositional statement. There are theological things going on in the Old Testament that make it important and necessary. Okay? There, there's a difference there. Uh, I don't know if I'm succeeding in articulating that or not, but there's a difference there. But where you wind up is important. So what I'm hearing you say is that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, much as the angel that leads the Israelites is Yahweh incarnate. The angel is not Yahweh incarnate. Incarnate means born of a woman, you know, born of a virgin, born okay. of a woman. Manifested. Okay, passing through the yeah. birth, can- birth canal, the whole process, okay? Right. And you know, they're in the womb. You don't have any of that in the Old Testament. You don't have, the angel wasn't born of a woman. Right. The angel is sort of this God in human form placeholder 
Okay, the but the incarnation is is more dramatic. I mean, it's more. Uh, so the so it, the angel the, is a real that, being. That, that second that yeah that second being is described in incarnation terms in the New Testament. So the angel is a real being, but God is operating through this other real being, right? Assuming it's not just a theophany, that there's a really an angel there. There's really a, a deity. I would say God's presence is embodied in that angel, but that doesn't mean God is nowhere else other than the angel is. Sure. Yeah. But he's but he's manifest and operating through this other being. It's uh it's his agent yes. in a sense. So then is Jesus Jesus is a man and Yahweh is operating through him in in a unique way? The incarnation would be different than Yahweh picking a man and inhabiting him. Okay, again, the incarnation goes all the way back to, to Mary's conception. So again, that rules out sort of an adoptionist perspective. It'd be very easy to, to go back in the Old Testament, look at like divine kingship psalms and things like that, and think of adoption. Again, I, I, don't, I don't beat up the adoptionists you know, for, for that, because you can, you can go to those passages and look at it. But the, the New Testament doesn't actually present Jesus that way, because it goes back to, again, what's going on with Mary's womb. Well, we have, you know, the, the Most High is in her womb, and you're going to call him Jesus, and so on and so forth. The angel says he'll be called the Son of the Most High because the Most High has caused the pregnancy, basically. Yeah, and that, and that Son of the Most High, again, going back into the Old Testament, you have all the, all the other angels. You know, you get you get this sonship language again. Now, now we're getting into the the old struggle and discussion of ontological versus economic or hierarchical Trinitarian stuff. I don't think you have any any of that precise kind of language going on, especially in the Old Testament. What you do have is you have a single angel that is identified as Yahweh because my presence, my name is in him. This one and that individual is in some passages fused with, identified with, and not distinguished from Yahweh. So that creates a, a conceptual framework. And then when you move to the New Testament, you have the New Testament writers putting Jesus in those slots or in that slot. Jesus you know, is spoken about in the, in the same way, except you get this added notion of an incarnation. So sonship language we know from, from Hebrew culture, even you know, firstborn, you know, something like that. Well, the firstborn isn't necessarily a term of chronology. It's a term of inheritance, term of authority and whatnot, you know, the, the, with the whole blessing concept. So it, in some cases it could be used chronologically, other cases it, it clearly isn't. The monogenese language, only begotten. Well, monogenese is the, is the term used of, if you go to Hebrews 11, you know, who was, who was Abraham's monogenese, you know? Well, it has to be it, it, it can't be Ishmael, so it's not a reference again to the, mm -hmm. yeah, the that's only right. son or the firstborn son. It, it's Isaac mm -hmm. because he was the son of the promise. You know? yep. So some of this language you know, is, is multivalent, at least multivalent. It's not like it has 10 different meanings, but you get the idea. It, it's, it's not necessarily uh, something that we can, you know, in our culture, we look at something like firstborn and we just assume chronology. Well, it, it's not necessarily a good assumption to make right. you know, back in that, in that cultural context. Dr. Heiser, in a number of New Testament passages, Jesus is described as having a God over him. And in John 20, 17, it said that this God, who is Jesus' God, is also our God. What do you make of this, then? Is, isn't the God that's over Jesus Yahweh? Yes, he is. But Jesus is also Yahweh incarnate. Just as in the Old Testament, the Malach Adonai, the angel who had the presence in him, was not autonomous. He took orders. Okay, he had a head. He had a lead. He was obeying the God of Israel who sent him to guide the children of Israel. Okay, so even in the Old Testament, you have this sense of, okay, we've got two figures in the scene here. One's Yahweh. The other one is also identified with Yahweh through, this, you know, through the name Hashem and all this kind of stuff. And other passages, they're fused together. 
but yet they're distinct because one is in charge and the other one takes orders. So that thinking seen in the Old Testament then applied or transferred to or, or Jesus is cast in the same way would not have confused people con that were familiar with the Old Testament because there's an analogous sort of situation going on there. They wouldn't confuse the Son and the Father. No, I don't, I don't think they would because mm -hmm. it would be very clear who, again, who is, who is hierarchically in charge and who is not, you know, who, is, who is being obedient. Uh, and, you know, Jesus is always cast, you know, as the, the obedient servant. Mm-hmm. Again, much in the same way that the angel, the, the angel's never autonomous. The angel never does, you know, something without, you know, the, the approval of, of Yahweh, you know, the, the father figure. And, and Yahweh is a father figure. Mm -hmm. See, there's, there's, another, there's another good example. I mean, you, okay, you don't have all the father language of, of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Well, that's nice. Well, you, you still have father motifs. You have th this whole sense of father and, and the shepherd versus the sheep and, and all this kind of stuff. A lot of this is is attributable to kingship in the ancient Near Eastern world, who was viewed as a father, mm -hmm. even though he wasn't the progenitor of all the people. The father has more than one meaning. So a, a lot of the, these, these semantic trappings, again, are applicable between both testaments. They, they should be familiar to us because, you know, the, the vocabulary that, that we use does have more than one meaning. But again, we, when we see these things, we sort of, our mind sort of gravitates to, to one or two uh, senses of the term. And I, th I think, you know, we have to be careful not to sort of get trapped, you know, in thinking about a, a particular term in only one or two ways. Dr. Heiser, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. This week's thinking music has been Fugue States from the album The Wilderness I Want by Jim Rooster. You can hear or download that track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Also on that blog post, you'll find a link to Dr. Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. He says a lot more there about what we just talked about. His claim that there is binatarian theology, in a sense, in the Old Testament, and also about the subject of last week's podcast, that the Bible everywhere assumes the existence of a divine council. Finally, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a written review in iTunes. That's the main way you can help other people find the Trinity's podcast. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>